Welcome everyone to a project we are very excited to present here at the Podmill. Working title, Search and Rescue Utah Podcast. This podcast is all about enjoying the incredible natural resources we have here in the great state of Utah uh, from the perspective of someone who is not quite as lucky. We're looking at things from the search and rescue side, what happens when things go wrong, not necessarily to highlight people's mistakes, but rather to learn from them and to understand how to better interact with our natural environment. Few people better to do that with uh, than Mr. Ben Burr, host of the podcast. Ben, welcome today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Ben Burr. I'm the policy director for Blue Ribbon Coalition. We are a national advocacy group that fights for recreational access for all forms of recreation use. And part of our organization's mission is also to educate recreation users to be responsible when they're out recreating on public land. And so there exists a pretty robust ecosystem of educational materials, pamphlets, kiosks, A lot of groups like ours go to great lengths to educate members and users how to recreate responsibly. And as I looked at that landscape of information, I thought, well, what are some ways we can kind of break through and reach as many people as we possibly can, perhaps people that haven't been reached before? And I looked at my experience and realized every time I go out on an organized ride with groups and clubs, there's always a member of a search and rescue team. And you get talking to the members of search and rescue teams. A lot of times these are volunteers. They have really incredible stories of times where people have been out recreating on public land, had something go wrong. And these came across to me as some of the best learning experiences that we could have. Um, there's a, you'll always be able to learn something from a search and rescue mission. So we applied for a grant with, there's a Utah the Utah OHV program sponsors grants for organizations like ours to educate our members and our and the people we have access to. And so we applied for one to do a podcast series where we'll talk to search and rescue volunteers and members of search and rescue teams across the state of Utah uh, with a particular focus on OHV related search and rescue missions. And so this is this, these first few episodes will definitely focus on when OHV users have something go wrong, search and rescue teams get called out, what can we learn from those experiences and those stories? And our, our hope was that this would create a situation where we have a lot of good stories that are interesting to listen to, uh, places that you've probably known and visited yourself if you're here in the state, and the things you can learn from the mistakes from others. And so... Uh, our first guest, I've become, I've become good close friends with Chris Reed. Uh, I'm going to let him introduce himself. His experience is phenomenal. He's one of the most experienced search and rescue operators in the state. He's based out of Utah County, and I'll let him document a little bit of his own experience, how much, how much of this he's actually done. But I chose him to be our first guest because I know he's got probably some of the broadest experience in the search and rescue environment, encountered some of the craziest stories, and I know he's got some good ones to share with us today. And so I'm going to turn the time over to Chris to give us a little background on his experience, and we're going to dive into some of the, the specific search and rescue missions he's been called on and start gleaning from those what we can learn as a community from these experiences. 
1976, I was at the scene of two critically injured people at different kinds of car accidents. And, and I had the basic Boy Scout uh, training and both these people were dying. And the first one, I, I did what I could. I essentially held her and, and watched the lights go out. And then a few weeks later, I was at the scene of a wreck out by Green River, high-speed crash. And again, I, I, I did what I could. And, and I got home and I, I go, uh, there's something missing here. I don't have the training I need. And I noticed in the Spanish Fork newspaper that they would train EMTs as long as you serve for two years. And whoa, you know, that opened up a whole new um, thing that I really got involved with. So I served on Spanish Forks Ambulance for two years. And then I saw a plane crash um, incident on the mountain above our place. And I watched the search and rescue team. And I said, I'd really like to do that. And I had been in the back country a lot with my dad. He was with the U.S. Geological Survey, the USGS for the Department of Interior. So I was all over the Western states and I had picked um, Utah because I, I can be in a river or in a lake or in the mountains, out in the desert, in a matter of just an hour or two. And so I, I loved Utah. And so that's where I decided I was going to live. And so I got involved in SAR in, in 1979. And it, it it's almost addictive. You... And I was trained as a design engineer. I worked for a company that downhole, made downhole drilling equipment for oil industry. And the you're, you're given all this training and you have all this equipment and you're given a problem to solve as an engineer. And I applied that to search and rescue and, and ambulance. And you would be given a, you know, there's a person on the cliff here at Bridalvale. And, you know how are you gonna how are you gonna solve that problem, and so we would have a team, and that is the the key to it all. You have all this training, you have this team, and you have this equipment, and your assignment is to go in and take care of that person. So you set up two or three teams to go in different ways, and the one that is most successful then sets up a, a rigging system. The teams coming from below might set up intermediate teams, and the whole the whole um, it, it is like um, a team effort. I don't know how to put it in a word. You know, each one of those members would do anything they could to, to help anybody else. And it's a, it's a different breed. And I've been on somewhere around 2,300 two, two SAR missions and um, probably 3,000, 4,000 ambulance calls. And it's always the same. It's a, it's a team. And it's a bunch of, it's a group of people with similar likes, similar mentality. I don't know what you want to call it, but you just, you, you go in and solve the problem and, and help somebody. Yeah, so that's impressive. So just so the audience is clear, you've been on 2,000. About 2,300 to 400 SAR missions. SAR missions, so that's yeah. search and rescue missions. Search and rescue missions. were called mission. out yeah. because there was a critical incident and they needed the assistance of a team of the yeah. experienced people like yourself and you've also been part of the ambulance yeah call outs I, I 
was with the ambulance crew for two years as a first responder, then got my um, EMT, then advanced um, EMT medical-wise. I joined the SAR team, and and that was a whole new, a whole new thing for me. I I did the uh, um, scuba rescue. I did uh, mountain rescue. I did swift water rescue, open water rescue. Became a canine handler for SAR. Um, there was all these different tools you could learn, and and that's what I enjoyed doing. Wow. So I would say that, and one of the reasons I picked you as our first guest for this podcast is, we'd probably be hard pressed to find other folks in the state with as many years as experience, as many actual missions under their belt. And that's not to discredit all the other phenomenal search and rescue volunteers and professionals we have in the state, but you've been around the block. You've been here doing this for how many years? Um, 1976 is when you said you started? Yeah. So what's that? 42, 43 years on ambulance and 41 years are. Yes. Yeah. So we... So we, we are just really glad you're here. Um, you're willing to make time to share your experience with the audience for this podcast. And uh, we want to just dive in now and start talking about some of these experiences you've been in. Uh, you were generous enough to share some of your documented stories. I mean, you've kept pretty good journals of your um, missions you've been on. And the one I want to start with is, I think it was sometime in the early 1980s, you, it looked like you were out doing a training mission with some of the other search and rescue volunteers in the area. And let's just start with that. I saw the need for um, a vehicle to haul equipment and and access backcountry. Um, we, I think we had one or two three-wheelers as a team and I found a war surplus M275. They called them an army mule. And I had two or three of them to keep one running. But I set it up for doing search and rescue, put radio equipment on it, put seats on it, put medical equipment in it. And we were doing a joint training. So so let's describe a little bit what this looks like because it's almost hard to imagine. And for a generation that's grown (laughs) up thinking that an off-highway vehicle is like a Polaris Razor, a four-wheeler. Picture in your mind a four-by-eight sheet of plywood. Put wheels in all four corners. Put a steering wheel up in the left corner with a funny-looking cage for your feet. And a postage-sized seat behind that steering wheel. It actually had a steering wheel. But what was unique about it is it had drop axles. So there was no axle down below. They had um, some really well-designed mechanical uh, drive system for the wheels. And it was all aluminum and magnesium. It was built for the Korean War, maybe tail end of World War II. And uh, I had a buddy that had one that he said he had a twin 50s mounted to his in in, uh, Vietnam. And uh, it just seemed like the, the the neatest tool for doing SAR because I had this big platform that I could put a litter on. I could haul gear. I could haul people. I put some old Subaru seats on it so I could move people with it. And we had this training with Provo, 
And I hauled all kinds of gear to up above the Y. And there's a spot where you can turn around up the top of the Y. And our we had a mock two or three victims along the face. And so we were doing a search and we found our victims and we we're getting ready to carry them out. And, and uh, a very good friend of mine said, I'll bring your army mule out for you. And somehow in the process of turning around on the mountain above the Y, um, he went over the edge. And he said he was just off to the races and a tree happened to knock him out of the seat and my machine rolled the full length of the Y and maybe a hundred feet below. It struck a tent. It was at the bottom of the Y with a couple of kids in it. Now it didn't hurt them. I don't know. And I, I heard on the radio that Dan, Danny rolled a machine and he's hurt. And, and my heart just sunk. He's a really good friend. And I, I said, I'm on my way. And so now our mock rescue had turned into the real thing. And, and we had an air med, I think it was there with us during the mock. And, um, so I went over a couple of canyons and, and Rich, a good friend of mine, Rick, a good friend of mine said, Danny's talking and he's not hurt that bad. And he, and so then you know, that, that eased some of the pain. And so they loaded him on a helicopter. I got on over there to where he was and the helicopter was able to see him before he was transported down. And he says, I'm, I mean, I'm good. And so then I just went down the mountain trying to find my machine. And I found a piece here and I found a piece there and I go, this is not good. And I got down to about a hundred feet below the Y and, and my sh machine is a, a twisted wreckage with the wheels ripped off it and it was totally destroyed. And um, the, the commander said, what do we need to get your machine off? And I said, well, I can strap all the pieces together and, and have a helicopter come in and get it because there's nothing you can do with this. And, you know, it's up in the, in the oak brush and you can't leave it here. And so that we brought in a helicopter service out of Provo and they flew the wreckage off the mountain. So that was, that's the end of my first OH vehicle that I use for search and rescue. And now there's been a whole lot more. Yeah, and no, you've been custom building them ever since. I, I saw the pictures of this uh, army mule. It kind of reminds me of like the little vehicles my son builds with Legos. It's kind of just mishmashed <laughs> together. With a few. It doesn't look like the, the type of off-road vehicle you'd probably see nowadays, but was very capable up until the point it rolled down the mountain. Um, I wanted to start with that story mostly because one of the most common issues you run into with a search and rescue situation is most people probably go in with a mindset of this is not going to happen to me. I, uh, I've been here before. We get very comfortable after we've been had enough events where nothing went wrong. We think we know what we're doing. And things can't go wrong. And so that story stuck out to me because here we had a search, multiple search and rescue teams. You guys were as experienced as they come. And even in an environment where you're doing specific trainings about search and rescue, things can go wrong. So if this could happen to the professionals and the volunteers who do this and they're the best in the business, then this could certainly happen to the amateurs and the people who are members of the general public who go out just to have a nice, enjoyable 
day on the mountain. If it can happen to the search and rescue guys, it can happen to anybody. Yeah. Um, I, I, I felt comfortable with letting him drive that machine. He'd driven one in Nam. And I was kind of surprised. But, you, you know, you it's a narrow road. You're doing a, a you know, a three-point turn on the road to get turned around. Something happened there. And, you know, I never found out what. But, you know, I, we went back to the command post and Danny uh, had left the hospital and come back to the scene. And and he's, he came up to me and he was in tears. He says, I ruined your machine. And I said, I can replace machinery. I cannot replace my friends. And I said, it is a wash. It, it, I am just glad you were not hurt. Speaking about experience, and this is something that we had kind of brought up and potentially a good segue uh, to, to further the show, you had mentioned you have uh, or you form this kind of internal checklist after examining so many different rescues, so many different uh, scenarios, you've kind of correlated and seen what's gone wrong. And you had just mentioned that this gentleman not only was an experienced driver, he was an experienced driver on this specific piece of equipment, but perhaps one of the checklist items could have been he was unfamiliar with the terrain. Uh, what are your thoughts on on this type of uh, emergency checklist or what are some things that people seem to miss even if they have a familiarity with equipment? He was familiar with the machine. He was familiar with the the terrain it was just one of those things that happens hmm. um you know you you're under a, pr a pressure on a rescue because a, a life could be in in jeopardy and and we try to make the training just as realistic as the as a rescue because you know that thinking process um has to be the same you know in your when you're training you know, the, it's, it, you know there's not a life in, in jeopardy. But when you get into the real incident and you go, I've done this before. I know what to do. I know what the what equipment's needed. And you don't have to, you don't freeze. You don't, your mind is working. You know what has to be done and you do it. And, and it was just one of those free things. Hmm. Can't plan for it. Can't plan for it. But no. the response of the team, I think, too, also speaks to the, just like you said, the commitment, the, ded the dedication, but the confidence. I mean, that kind of sounds like what you guys are describing through the training. You know that you can do it. You know that you've been here, at least in something similar before, right? Yes, that's what training is all about. You're increasing your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. You know, you're up on the ice in a rescue on Bridal Veil. The weather is going bad. There's avalanches happening both sides of the rescue, and and everything goes into um, a haste mode. You're you're doing everything as possible, as fast as possible, to get out of there because, in, in in be realistic about it, your life is in danger, and you need to just move as fast as you can hmm. to get out of the situation and bring this person out. Yeah, and so if that same mindset happens to people like you who are trained to kind of be operational with under the pre in a situation under pressure, um, a lot of times someone might 
go out that isn't a trained search and rescue professional, something goes wrong. And at the point where that thing goes wrong, all the decisions you make after that are now very different from what they would have been before something went wrong. Um, a lot of times a victim of a search and rescue mission is in the same kind of a pressure cooker where they're now making decisions where it's a life and death situation. Mm-hmm. They've gone from fun recreation with our family to I might not live through this. And that changes your mindset. It changes the context of the decisions you make. Do you, can you think of any rescues where you've seen a bad decision kind of cascade into a sequence of bad decisions that took a situation that was pretty bad and then became worse and worse because of the decisions that were made in that pressure cooker type environment? Uh, we had a, a missing man. He lied, liked to ride his motorcycle up in the mountains. He liked to go by himself. So that, you know, they mentioned the 10 items in a checklist. And so he just checked off that first box. I'm going to go by himself. And then um, the family says, we don't know where he went. Okay, he just checked off that second box. You know, nobody knows where you're at. And in this situation, the individual was um, had a criminal record. So they, the deputies were assigned. They, weren't, they didn't call it any SAR for um, a couple of hours. And they said, well, he likes to go up and motorcycle on Camel's Back and Pole Haven Road. And uh, so they knew where to look. That's where he liked to go. And the deputies were sent up there, and they couldn't find his vehicle, so they didn't think he was up there. And an hour or two later, another deputy went up and found his vehicle hidden back in the trees, and he had backed up to the fence because the gate was locked. So he's now accessing property that's locked up, and he's hidden his vehicle. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's poor de- some poor decision-making, I'm sorry. And he's jumped the fence. So nobody would expect him to be there. And just as soon as the deputy found the vehicle, we had an idea where he might be. And uh, I went in on a ATV. We had a side-by-side and two more um, individuals on. Sorry, it was, it was kind of a limited call. We just to go see if we can find this guy. He's missing. And so the four machines, we went up uh, the back way to Camel's Back, and there's a storm coming in. Okay, let's check off that other box. You know, that 10 things that can go wrong. And so we're going up the road and we're following a single set of motorcycle tracks. So we go, okay, this guy is probably up here. And we got up and we came through the saddle at, at Camel's Back. And we came around a bend and here's a motorcycle helmet right in the middle of the road. You know, and I, I, I kind of, you know, after been doing this 40 years, you go, I think I've seen everything. No, you haven't. You know, that, and I, I thought to myself, well, I haven't seen that one before. And I went around the bend, and here's, a, here's the missing man on, underneath his motorcycle. And that storm is now starting to come in. And it's horizontal sleet and snow. And I went over to him, and I said, Where, how are you okay? And he said, how'd you find me? He says, nobody knows I'm here. He says, I expected to die here. And I said, well, you know, what's your, what, what, where do you hurt? And he says, oh, my femur's broke. 
And I looked down and he put his belt around his leg and uh, some kind of splint, but it was actually next to worthless. And he says, I got back on my motorcycle with a femur fracture. Now, picture that in your mind. That's some real internal strength to do that in the pain. So he got back on his motorcycle with a femur fracture and started down and then lost his balance and fell over. And with that fracture, he couldn't get the motorcycle off him. And he said, he said, I expected to die here. He says, I just, nobody knew I was here. And I carry a femur traction splint in my pack. And so we splinted his leg and we called out a full team response then. So 40 guys are headed our, our way to help us. And we were able to um, package him up and slide him in the back of the, the ranger, the side-by-side, and go down without any problems. The rest of the team really wasn't needed. But he made a number of decisions that set him up for that. He could have easily died there. And, you know, the, the, you know I mentioned four of them. You know, nobody knows where you're at. You know, you're going in by yourself. You're not prepared for any kind of disaster. He only had a light coat on and it's horizontal sleet and snow. So he had no, he had no little uh, pack on his back with some water, maybe a fire starter or something like that. If we hadn't found him and he would have been dead by morning. Yeah, he was a lucky dude. Yeah, no, that's a good one that where you have the checklist of things you shouldn't do. He kind of started checking off several of those and then got into a situation where the number of good decisions left available to him became almost non-existent. Yeah. There weren't good decisions to make anymore. And so you take away that ability to make good decisions by a cascading sequence of bad decisions leading into that. And so we'll, so we hope that some of these next stories we tell kind of start to illustrate some of the things we can do to be a little bit more prepared and conscientious of making sure we're not checking off the, li- the, the check boxes on Chris's list. That's the <laughs> recipe for disaster. Um, you had at least two, maybe three incidents where people actually drove OHVs into open mine shafts. Yes. Um, Utah County, especially the Eureka um, Mining District, um, had open mine shafts. And, and after this first couple of these about 25, 30 years ago, they made a conscientious effort to go find them all and fill them. And some of them were even actually had a concrete cap. And if you go search the, the news, you'll be able to find them. Um, this individual that I'm thinking about was riding his, uh, I think it was probably a three-wheeler, it might have been a four, out across the desert, and he drove over at the opening of a mine shaft. The, the one I'm thinking about had no gates, no fences, um, no signs, nothing. He just f- flew along and uh, suddenly had open air below him and impacted the side of the mine shaft, then went down the mine shaft. Um, his family uh, found him. I don't, I don't know the, what happened there, but they took a car tire tied a rope to it 
lowered it down to him and he got in the car tire and they started pulling him up. They got about halfway and the rope broke. And so he went to the bottom again. And so they, they called, uh, I think Lehigh uh, Fire Rescue was out there with us. And we set up a, a system, a hall system and put a litter down there with a litter attendant, packaged him in the litter and hauled him up, you know, in multiple rope systems and and mechanical advantage systems. So it was no big deal hauling him up the mountain, up out of the hole. And, um, it, you know, he went home to his family. Um, another incident that I'm thinking about is uh, they were, if you know where Sunshine Mine is, uh, up above Tooele, they were upriding, upriding a uh, the most beautiful Willie's Jeep that you've ever seen. And they had, he had won all kinds of awards for this uh, cherried out Willie's Jeep. And uh, I'm not gonna say that they may have had a, a few drinks or two, but they drove their Jeep up a mound that had a fence around it, drove through the fence, and if you ever watch water going down a drain, I think it must have been something like that because the water swirls and then disappears down the hole and you could see their car tracks and he probably saw the hole and went to the side and you could see these tracks, these machine tracks, do this funny spiral thing around that bowl of that and then vertically down the hole. And this was a really odd shaft it's only about 80 feet deep, but beside it was one that was a thousand feet deep. And they didn't go down that one. <laughs> but this one was a square hole, it may have been some kind of vent shaft or, or something, I don't know. But they were now driving their Willie's Jeep down a square hole. I can just imagine what that would have been like. And their Willie's Jeep was being forged you know, the hole was actually just a little smaller than Jeep, which was lucky for them. And as it went down the hole, like I, you can imagine what that would have been like, just going vertically down, face looking and and the noise of the Jeep disintegrating around you. Um, yeah, th that had to be pretty impressive. And they got to the bottom and hit the bottom. And, and this was springtime and nobody's out there in the mud driving around. Well, lucky for them, somebody came by and they go, oh, look at the mine shaft and walked over to it and these kids are down at the bottom of it. They go, hey, throw us a rope. You know, what are the odds of that? They were just lucky. And they didn't have a rope, but they took the, um, the wire fence that was around the, the mine shaft and took it out of the, it was already loose from the ground. So they put the fence down the hole as a, as a ladder. And they hung on to the one end of it and lowered the, the fence down the hole and they climbed up the barbed wire fence. So when we got there, they, they um, were already out of the hole so they, they weren't hurt bad. I imagine the upholstery was sucked off the seats, but, but they weren't, they weren't hurt. But, um, kind of a funny story. One of our SAR guys went back there the day next next day and 
went down in the hole and and removed all the little plaques from the dashboard of the Jeep of all the awards he'd won with it and and then he mailed him one every once every one mailed one of those plaques once a week for the next few months but you know they they were lucky they were just lucky yeah and so i wanted to talk about those because a lot of times we like you said i mean most of these old mine shafts the land management agencies have done a pretty good job of closing those off whether those hazards still exist out on the trail today probably less so less likely the case compared to the 1980s but hazards still exist if if you go out to the sunshine mine now you'll see that there's a steel mesh um, heavy duty mesh over that whole mine entrance and if you get the light right you can see that jeep at the bottom of it Still there. It's still there. It didn't, it didn't back out. So they say if they were able to get it out and drive it away, no, it'd be a nice little Jeep commercial. Oh, oh, no. It was forged into that shape. I mean, it had ripped the roll bars loose from the bed, and they were all bent in. So that's what saved them was the fact that the hole was just a little bit smaller than the profile of their Jeep. So it just made the Jeep a little smaller as it went down, and it slowed them down sufficient that when they hit the bottom, they were okay. Yeah. A lot of luck was involved. That reminds in this. there's like a scene in Jurassic Park where the Jeep goes off the road and goes through a tree. <laughs> kind of the same thing, like a slow motion fall, and by the time it gets to the bottom, it But you don't have a little mirror that said these objects are closer than they appear. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so this is the thing I wanted to emphasize here is we advocate a lot. The other groups we're partners with. We're always telling people they need to stay on trails. Um this country, there are hazards. The trails, if you're on the trail, you're not going to run into these. You might not run into a mine shaft, but Utah's landscape's dynamic enough. There are going to be other hazards you could run into. I, mean, I know there was one of your stories where somebody just had kind of gone off the side of the road. The roads are steep. That situation where you lost control of your vehicle, getting into an environment where you could, it could be really tough to get out, and if somebody doesn't happen to walk by, shortly thereafter you could be in a lot of trouble and so it kind of struck out to me as that's a more educational experience of why you need to stay on a trail then a lot of times we're saying you shouldn't leave a trail because of the resource damage which is important we shouldn't but there's a safety component to that as well the trails mean other people have been there before they're there they're safe and even then sometimes a trail in Utah might get washed out. There might be some kind of a erosion event or weather or something that makes a trail that's otherwise safe not. And so, I mean, we definitely shouldn't be driving through fences and into mine shafts, <laughs> but there is a, there's a less egregious form of that that we need to be conscious of. If, if, if you are serious OHV, you better have a, a, a crash bag, you know, a, a self-rescue bag in the back of your Jeep. You're going to once, uh, I just keep two or three MREs in that bag. I keep um, about a gallon of water. I have fire starting equipment. I have, um, I, 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 on all my machines, I'll actually go through and look at the hardware on the machines and make sure I have a tool that can access. I don't 
depend upon the toolkit that came with my OHV. Um, I'm sorry, they're they're not worth the the weight. Don't you just need a ten centimeter ratchet? Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Every you know, I'm thinking of a ride where uh, my clutch, my uh, belt, just exploded at about thirty miles an hour. I thought my machine had come apart, but I needed a eight millimeter deep socket to access my belt. I had a spare belt, you know that. You know, if you, every four to five thousand miles, usually in your machines, put a new belt on. Take the old belt, throw it under the seat. Well, that's what I had, and um, I thought my bike had disintegrated underneath me. The noise it made, and so you know, it with a little bit of work I fixed it. I didn't have an eight millimeter socket, but somebody else with me, an eight millimeter deep socket. I had an eight millimeter socket. But I hadn't gone in and said, okay, this screw that I'm trying to access, do I have the tool to get to that? And, and changing a belt is something you're going to have to do. You know, I thought I had what I needed, but I didn't. And after that, it was a good lesson. I made sure that I had the correct socket, wrench, whatever, to access that point. And uh, we've done some pretty amazing things on the trail. We've taken a starter off and rebuilt a starter on a trail um, just because we were prepared, had the right tools. And and they're not very expensive. Go get some of these um, Mylar um, sleeping bags. I'm not talking the kind that fit in your back pocket. I'm talking about the kind that are about the half the size of a shoebox. And they've got a webbing to them. Um, the the mylar blanket safety blankets are not worth the dime i've tried to sleep under one in zero weather low freezing and the, basically the thing that kept me warm was the fact i was moving trying to keep it on me <laughs> so get the bag style and if you get the kind that has the weave you know you're, you're, you're that much better off put a bivy sack they're not very don't take much room a bivy said, you're not carrying a tent, but you're carrying a personal tent. So you put on that, you get in a bag style sleeping bag and you pull a bivy sack up around you and you can, you may not be comfortable, but you will live the night. And, and, and if you don't, if there's two or three people in your group, you need to be able to all do that. You know, be able to start a fire, even in inclement weather. Uh, it may not be matches or something, stick an old car flare in there. You know, they make some quarter size car flares and it's a mini blowtorch. You're likely to be able to start a fire. Just some little things like that. Doesn't take a whole lot of room in your gear, but just think about the environment where you're going. You're gonna have a rain suit. Are you gonna, you know, have a light tarp? I was out riding a couple of weeks ago and got caught in a horizontal rainstorm. I took the tarp out, wrapped it around me in the steering wheel and then and as I took the flap of the tarp and put it up alongside my face because the wind and rain were so violent you couldn't see and this blocked it. You know, you, you have to improvise. You have to go prepared for what, you know, even what might, probably not, because it said no rain that weekend. And oh, yes, it did. Yeah, no, in Utah, one thing you can count on oh, is that whatever boy. the weather forecasts are, aren't going to be right. And well, I've been in 
hailstorms on the top of the mountains in July where yeah. it looked like there was two or three inches of snow on the ground. I, I wouldn't have expected that. I thought July, there's no way there will be the equivalent of snow. I might have a bad rainstorm, but it <laughs> you you can count on being surprised by the weather in Utah more than that you can count on a, a forecast to be reliable. If, if you don't like Utah weather, wait 10 minutes because it will be different. Or travel 10 miles. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So anyway, moving on from these mineshaft incidents, which I thought were just kind of uh, interesting stories, probably a little dated. I think yeah. we've become a little more careful about what's out there since the, the 1980s were kind of the heyday, the 70s and 80s of people out exploring for different minerals on public lands. And they've had to clean up a lot of that mess since then. Um, I was surprised by the number of incidents in your record of people not wearing helmets. And especially, it, it seems like many of your incidents were related to people on four-wheelers or there, there was kind of this period in the time in the 80s and 90s where there were these machines called three-wheelers, which were really, really fun, but also they don't make them anymore because of, I think, the safety risks to them. Um, but that's kind of a nature of the equipment you have to come. I mean, obviously any type of outdoor recreation has the potential for things to go wrong. Uh, you could be hiking, you could be rock climbing, horseback riding, dirt biking, side by side, like any Jeep, any of this things could go bad. But I did notice there was a, because of your experience and your, the ability you have to get to specific places with your equipment, there was a lot of these ATV kind of four-wheeler type incidents and there were several where people weren't wearing helmets and so why don't you talk a little bit about what how those turned out there's there's a myriad of them um, if you do the research anything above probably 25 miles an hour the helmet really is a, becomes a detriment because of the cervical damage and an impact but when you're on a atv you're going to be off of it after the first impact or roll so now you're bouncing along on the rocks and you know you're stopping pretty soon so yes helmet big big survival um not to be gross or anything but in the really bad impacts, it keeps everything together. Um, there's been times where, you know, there's fatals. I probably go on 10 fatals a year out of a, probably 100 to 120 rescues. Um, bad things happen to people. And the, the helmet keeps everything kind of there. Um, the, in the side-by-side, with the roll bars and the seat belt systems and stuff now that we have, um, the helmet is not as critical, but still wear one. Um, there's a lot of times if I'm doing low speed camera work or somewhere I'm getting out a lot, um, I, I won't wear one, but I'm wearing seat belt. Um, the roll cage makes all the difference. If you're on a three-wheeler ATV, then yes, helmet's a must. And I believe the law is everything under yeah, The law under requires 18. it. If you're actually straddling mm -hmm. the machine, mm -hmm. it is required. 
the side-by-side the law is kind of optional unless indicated otherwise i believe in some of the sand dune areas they're required mm-hmm. especially for children and um but there were those were the incidents where i noticed in your record where a lot of those were there were some pretty critical injuries were those who decided not to yeah the one that i'm thinking about was there's a back trail from sheep creek up to teat mountain and it's a incredibly beautiful trail uh, except it's a whole lot easier if you're going down it and this father and son went up it and the fact that his helmet was strapped to the luggage rack did him absolutely no good um, it, it opened up his, the backside of his head with a kind of a, a star kind of a pattern. It was, um, each leg of the star, it was a laceration, probably three to four inches long. And so it just opened up the backside of his head. And, um, um, I was first one on the scene. I had grabbed a one of the medical personnel I knew in Spanish Fork Ambulance. And we went in. Our assignment was to find him and kind of be a hasty team. And we found him. um, Air care and helicopter service was dispatched. And I got her working on the guy. He was conscious and alert. His son was kind of having um, issues because his dad was in and out of consciousness. And there was so much blood, you know, a head wound is just going to do that. And I found a good landing zone up on the ridge above us and directed air care down. And we came down and packaged him up and, and carried him two or 300 yards to the waiting helicopter. But, it, you know, it, there could have been some pre-planning done here. It, it's a doable route going up it. But if he'd come down, it, you'd see the same country. Um, start at Monk's Hollow, go up over the top, come down Sheep Creek. And instead of going up that terrain, he could have come down. Uh, it would have been a whole lot more safe. But it's a doable trail. But the fact that his helmet was strapped to his luggage rack um, did him no good. Indeed. So most people probably haven't been the victim of a search and rescue operation. And most people probably don't think a whole lot about it. Uh, When you guys go out, you're well-trained. There's a certain process you follow. And so for somebody who's never been involved in a search and rescue operation, I feel like there are some things that the mechanics of how an operation works, that if people understood how they worked, it would enable somebody, if they ever were a victim of an operation, they could position themselves to be either found, uh, have done some things that would make it easier for you to rescue them and to also do the life-saving, use your life-saving training to help them if they're injured or other things were going wrong. And so why don't we talk a little bit about that? Like instances where I believe there was one instance where somebody was lost up on White Mountain somewhere. And... You guys kind of were looking in the wrong place. Yeah, um, we we have pre plans. We we've been on many rescues in these very, same areas, and so when we're dispatched, we'll you know we'll 
have a, a, a pre-plan in mind. So the and as we're in route, um, based upon who's closest to the incident, we'll sign team leaders. Um, and based on the fact that, you know, if, if the incident says injured person, then we're lining up medical services, whether it's the EMTs and paramedics on our crew, or we're lining up um, air air assets, you know, air, you know, whether it's air med and life flight or DPS, depending upon injuries and location. We know the areas. And in this incident, this was a student that had been missing a day or two. And he had gone hiking up Y um, Mountain. So what is he doing? He's, he started checking off those boxes that I'm telling you about. Number one, his, he says, well, I'm going up Y Mountain. So we had a general idea where he was. And he says, I'll call you when I need to be picked up. And I'll tell you where. So his wife just said, well, he's up there. He had mentioned to a friend that he wanted to go up onto the peak on that face there right above the Y. So Provo had been searching for him for a day or two and they said, can you come assist us? We need more manpower. We just don't have enough. And so we had teams that going, went in and, and they wanted a base camp up high. And there used to be a, an old road that went back up in there. And a couple of us went back up in there with, with um, ATVs to set up a base camp to support the, the teams. And uh, we, we searched that entire day without finding anything. And then they put out a call to the, on the news, have anybody seen an individual up here in this, this area? And a guy came forward and said, yeah, I was looking at the mountain with a spotting scope. And I saw this individual um, over in some rocky areas and it was the next draw over from our search area. So that changed the entire plan for the next day. And so that the next day we went and, you know, you, you pick a, a face, you know, you're 2,000, 3,000 feet and you go and it's, uh, let's say it's two or 3,000 feet long. And then your person can be under a bush that you walk right by in that terrain around the rock that you just don't, you went around the left side of instead of around the right. And you could walk right by him. I've done that on a rescue search. Walked right by a body that we knew he was probably there, but didn't see him. So we put teams into that area and, and the team found him at the bottom of a cliff. And it just, he made some poor decisions. He again, checked off a list by himself. He wasn't adequate, he couldn't have done anything. You know, he grabbed a hold of a bush as a handhold, the bush came out. Um, wrong place, wrong, wrong time. Yeah, and so in that situation, that one was fatal, right? Yes. Yeah, so that would be a little bit of a different situation than one where if the teams are out looking for you 
Um, you said you've walked right by a bush where you should have been able to find somebody, but they didn't. What are some things people can do? Like, what is the best way to let search and rescue know where you are? If, if it's night, um, we're searching with you f- with night vision equipment. So just taking your phone if the, and, and you see the airplane. We had airplanes and helicopters above you with night vision equipment. So if you just take your phone and put the lighted surface pointing up, that's like a beacon with that night vision equipment. Just holding your phone up and pointing it at the plane. They'll see that. Um, <coughs> and then conversely to that, if you've got a bright light, make sure you're not pointing that light at the helicopter, point it at the ground around you. Draw a circle on the ground where you are with the light. They'll see that coming over the point of the mountain, just getting to you. But don't ever shine a bright, bright light at a search vehicle aircraft at night. You're blind to pilot. You also said you guys will look for cell phone pings. Yes. How does that work? Um, I've never, I mean, I think we all kind of know that our cell phones are sending out all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But I've never really thought through, well, how does my cell phone tell search and rescue where I am, especially in areas where you might be in a very remote area where you don't think your cell phone has coverage? The old phones will will go on on what we think is a good signal, and it's actually the cell tower. So the cell tower that your phone was talking to is actually what the coordinates are. But the newer phones, you will actually send the location where you're at with the signal. And in in the last 10 years, it's a phenomenal tool. Um, we'll know within about eight or 10 feet of where you're at with a, with a cell ping. Um, it's, it's all the data that's coming from your phone so that it can be figured out what cell tower best suits the signal. That's, that's the information that they're looking at. Some of your, your little cricket phones or something like that, they can't, they can't do it with, but incredible tool. So if I'm out there with my cell phone, a good iPhone or Android or something, yeah then I should be in pretty good shape, right? I mean, if I bring in one survival tool and that's the only, my phone, I'm going to most likely have it. I, I'm assuming I'm good then as long as I got uh, my phone? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's kind of the mentality nowadays. You, I've got my cell phone. I've got my um, water bottle. Um, I can go do Box Elder Peak. No. Um, just last year, or well, two years, two years ago, this guy likes to hike the mountain peaks. He's done a hundred. He wanted to do a hundred in a year, and he had one or two peaks left. And he told his friends, "I want to go do this peak. I want to get that one off my checklist." So he had an idea where he was. But he went up, and these runners are that same bell curve I talked about. They do it so many times that they have narrowed it down to exactly what they need. And they don't carry anything more. They don't allow for contingencies. It's just what they have used in the past. And so this individual was wearing a um, a running shoe, uh, Lycra's, 
and he had a light coat, and he was up in snow and ice. Um, our SAR guys who were up there were, were wearing ice crampons, big spikes that stick out of the bottom of their shoes. They said the area was treacherous. He just, he had this goal that he wanted to achieve. And he had done it so many times. This is close to a hundred peaks that he'd done. So he, he's foregoing the safety stuff that he needed to get that point, to get to that peak. And he fell, and I'm not sure that he survived the fall. He went a couple hundred feet, but he had nothing there to help him. And a storm came in that night, and he did not survive it. And, and you know, we like to do this backcountry mountain stuff. And we got to th plan just a little bit, take the necessary stuff. You know, he had little squeeze tabs of, of fruit, and, and that was basically it, and some water. If you're going to be out a day or two, that's nowhere near enough. And if he had survived the fall, you know, we're looking for him. We had a helicopter pilot. Spotter was the guy that saw him. You know, and it was actually out, even out of our search area. And, you know, kind of around the bend from the face that we were working. So what, what, what can you say, you know? You make a choice and then you gotta kinda have to live with that or die with it.